Hey, welcome to the New Home Insights Podcast by John Burns Real Estate Consulting. I'm Dean Worley, your host. Each episode, we're gonna bring you some of the best minds in the housing business talking about some fascinating topics or trend or innovation or issue, just like the one you're about to listen to. Enjoy. Hi, this is Dean Worley with New Home Insights with John Burns Real Estate Consulting Podcast. Today, we have a guest from Starward Land Advisors, Mike Moser. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Dean. How are you? I'm good. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about, well, pretty much focus on land and, of course, the residential market and development. Maybe get into a little bit about Bill for Rent, just a bit, at least in certain terms of how they compete within the land environment and get kind of a, a, a good, and also talk a bit about Starwood. So let's start there, Mike, if that's all right. Just tell us about your role there and maybe even maybe a little bit of history of Starwood land going back to, I think, 1991 and the SNL crisis and how you came to where you are today. So great. Thanks, Dean. So uh, I spent 13 years at uh, what is now known as Taylor Morrison. I was there um from about 1994 to 2007. And when, uh, when the, the, the last big recession hit, um, I was running our land development division and our high-rise tower division. And so we kind of got the message very early in both those departments that the recession was going to be of epic proportion. So I immediately pivoted and went out and started to raise money um, and, and find friends that believed that the recession was going to be an epic opportunity. Um, and Starwood has always, as you just mentioned, Starwood Capital has always had kind of a contrarian and, uh, and a special lens to look through with, you know, recessions and recoveries and so forth. And so we interviewed with several different private equity groups um, back in 06. And, and towards the end of 06, we kind of determined that Starwood was going to be a great resource and would invest in the darkest of days. And that's exactly what happened. So Starwood Cap uh, had, had a, a contrarian view, as did we. We were kind of predicting 25, 30% home price decline back in 06. Um, John Burns um, and I were uh, just getting to know each other and, and, and respect that. And he thought, wow, you guys really think things are going to get ugly. And, and, uh, and as we all know now, with the benefit of hindsight, in, in many locations, that was underestimating the impact. And so remember, um, remember Mike, remember all the soft landing uh, conferences and talks and headlines like, oh, come on, it's going to be a soft landing. And that was always uh, a pipe dream. So there's a, uh, I'll remain unnamed, but there was a, uh, <laughs> our second choice of equity was a different group that uh, is a very famous individual. And he said to us in late 06, he said, hey, this is going to be very, very ugly. He goes, but the initial deals that come out when the recession starts, he said, are gonna you're gonna think they're really really good deals. He goes, but then it's gonna drop another leg in a big big way, and then you're gonna start to buy deals. And he is a hundred percent right. The stuff that we bought in 07 and 08 pales in comparison in the stuff that we bought in 09 and 010. The stuff we bought in 010 was simply magic. You 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 really bought. Uh, stuff for 10 cents, 15 cents on the invested dollar. And and so that was a great business plan. It's not today. It's not realistic today. And Starwood Cap has been a great group to evolve with. Uh, 
as, as uh, so we've been exclusive partners for 14 years um, and, and doing residential land development and, and, and truly um, being a, a spokesperson and helper in anything kind of residential to Starwood Capital as they have invested in numerous other platforms. Um, they were one of the founding partners of Invitation Homes, what's now known as Invitation Homes. They obviously formed and founded TriPoint Homes. Um, and so they've been a great partner for us. And, and we, we feel like we've been that kind of reciprocal partner for them and kind of boots on the ground type intel of what's happening in the land and, and home building world, um, you know, since 07, really. Yeah, yeah. You do have that kind of partnership because I, I, I think of you guys as land and money, and that is a, a great relationship with Starwood Capital. We've been very lucky in that in that respect, and uh, and we've got a great team here at Starwood Land. With you know our back office is extraordinarily strong, and so we're able to report in the private equity way and 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 provide as much granularity and detail as they like, and and I think that combination of of money and 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 talent as it relates to uh, the development side. We've got uh, offices today in Florida. Our main office, Starwood Lands in Florida. We have a, a small satellite office in Denver and one in LA. So we can actually kind of move and, and pivot and and provide intel in a lot of these markets. Obviously the John Burns relationship helps too. So we've been, you know, very lucky with that one. Um, but um, we're able to kind of provide that intel and, and in a sophisticated kind of at the typical private equity level that they would expect. So you guys started, as we talked about, kind of with an SNL. You guys really started, honestly, by taking distress in the market and turning it in, into something of value and, and seeing that kind of vision just a few years later. Do you, is there any part of that approach that you can still do today? Are, are things just so completely different? Your approach has to be radically different than what it was those years ago. It truly is dramatically different now. In fact, um, when we first partnered with Starwood Cap, um, th there were many people that would say, "Oh, we have a hundred million dollar fund, you know, of, of for to acquire land deals." Well, now they have a billion dollar fund or two billion, and so um, Starwood Cap's Fund Twelve, I think, is like ten billion in equity and probably at least that in debt. So the world has grown exponentially as to the size of deals and, and flows that are out there. And, and distress does not exist. So you've got to really kind of try to find what we add value to. And, and what we in the residential business, what we add value to today is, you know, a big portfolio where we could kind of multitask across numerous markets. There's only a handful of developers that are actually doing it in multiple states at the same time. And so, you know, that's a, a, a way we are being able to pivot um, and underwrite of a, a, you know, tremendously diverse group of assets. When 2018, we, uh, we got in a nasty bidding war with uh, DR Horton on that four-star transaction. And, uh, and, uh, as as the world knows, Dr. Horton won the uh, won the battle, and they they ended up acquiring Four Star. But that was a very unique company that had you know oil and gas interest and timberland and multifamily apartments and and you know a fair amount of residential communities too. And so with Starwood Caps, you know, um, oil and gas team and our you know resi team and multifamily teams all combined together, 
we were able to do that very, very quickly and, and, and value that company. Unfortunately, the, the folks at DR won that war. We did win a little bit of the battle. We were able to buy 21 assets from them for about $230 million um, at, at the end of 2018. And so we've developed the vast majority of that portfolio out now. So it's kind so of a tail Is that kind of a key appeal to you, a target that might have sort of varied interest and, and sectors within various real estate? That certainly sets us apart because um, Starwood Cap has just about every vertical that's out there, industrial and and commercial. And so we, we can compete on a very diverse group of assets at, at, at one time. So that, that makes them a, an even better partner from that perspective. Um, truly, the land space you were asking earlier, is it is it different, the distress cycle? Um, yes, there was recently a... Uh, uh, a large tract in the western half of the United States that was marketed, uh, broadly marketed. They had 10 offers north of 200 million for a one master plan community. And so um, that would not have happened 10 years ago, obviously. Mm-hmm. No, it does seem like anything is, is fair game. We'll talk about land in a bit that's coming up. But when you approach an investment, a potential investment, do you have kind of a template approach, or is it very case by case, opportunity by opportunity? Yeah, if if it was if it was programmatic, it would be easy. But there's nothing easy, and every deal has uh, that we look at today has tremendous amount of hair and complexity on it. And so, if it were not hairy and complex, you know, the big public builders, uh, you know, they have access to extraordinary amounts of capital, and and the, the privates that are left. Are typically well financed as well, so you know you can't you can't discount them just because they're privately held. They have access to to big dollars. So if it's a mainstream type land deal, anywhere you know, call it a thousand units, even um, you know the competition amongst the builder group is robust, and so that that kind of makes it difficult to leave your developer margin in the deal. So you know our deals will typically have some entitlement issues or redevelopment plans or various, you know, complexities to them. Are you really kind of a, is it kind of a button down approach and and heavy on the quantitative? In other words, do you have to show here, we're going to get a specific return. We're going to show that with hard numbers. Or do you, do you ever approach things with your gut to kind of go with your gut, a little, little softer outlook? No, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think much of our stuff is gut. Is is it's more truly qualitative information that is, you know, something that, you know, what, what we know what land is trading for and what you know what builders will pay for lots or what you know multifamily folks will pay for a door on a you know apartment complex or what commercial space is going to sell for industrial. We will take our very best guess at all the complexities in that specific project and truly support and analyze, you know, comps in and around that area. But again, we do need the project to be complex with a multiple disciplines to be competitive. And so we are uniquely qualified to underwrite and evaluate all those complexities. So that kind of is one of our uh, focuses is trying to find those deals that are you know, big and complex, but also can, we can underwrite them. Not We're not going to use the term precise, but with very good measure. 
I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because we're we're a consulting company and, and a research company. So it's good to hear you say say that you want to you know want to have some evidence behind it. But you know there is that developer, that old school kind of developer image of cowboys and stuff like that. Is there anybody out there who's approaching this kind of cowboy style in your in your space? Oh, there are there are a handful. I, I don't see it institutionally, like any of the public builders or or anything of that. But there are some sophisticated uh, local people in each one of these markets that will take true entitlement risk, close a piece of land, and 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 for example, you know, it's outside the urban service line, and they would take the risk that they're going to get the urban service line moved. Well. That's not typically what the, the public or the big private builders are going to do. So each one of these markets has a uh, kind of a, a, a well-heeled private investor that will take some of that risk. So um, I, the, I don't see it from an institutional grade, but locally you'll run into those people in a lot of the big MSAs, especially. Um, there's, you know, pick a city and there's typically you know, one or two guys that have access to capital that will just close on a piece of property that is kind of path of growth, something like that. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's stay on the development part here just for a minute. The, you know, you hear a lot at conferences or whatever that everybody's kind of afraid of development, of entitlement, of risk right now. But you're just, you're just telling us that's a pretty competitive part of your world. Do you kind of know who those competitors are going to be? Is it a very, is it a fairly finite number of actors, but those actors are really, really competitive? Is it, is it that kind of environment? You definitely, you know, who you're competing against and, and it's a very small industry. Um, so yes, you will, you'll be able to predict eight or 10 uh, of, of your competitors on, on the deal that are out there. And so um, yes, it, it's competitive, but there are certain groups that, as you said, just will shy away from, you know, a substantial amount of the development work. And, you know, every market's different, Dean, as as we've talked about, um, you know, some markets have, you know, rock and stone and, and you know, that gets to be very, very expensive or or they have, you know, in California, you have entitlement issues that can be, you know, years, not months. And so, you know, those are risks that if you haven't done it before, you can easily get caught. And, and so, you know, that, that's where we, we kind of use our, we're, we're, we have enough gray hair guys, including myself in the room that, you know. <laughs> you said years for California. You said months and years, months, years, and you throw in decades as a category as well in California, because that can happen. I, I think that has happened. And, and yes. we, we are <laughs> un, unfortunately aware of that too personally. So we get it all too well. Um, we like, we like the Southeast United States a lot. The opposite reason, right? Um, how far back in the entitlement process are you willing to go in the food chain? Like, will you go, I mean, just absolute pure raw land? Are you been attracted to that? Or would you prefer to be a little further up the stream? It's all about the risk and the, and the propensity for entitlements. If it's, if it's uh, a true unentitled tract, then the price would be commensurate with that. And so in every municipality, it's different as to how many, you know, months or years that equals, right? And so um, in a lot of our markets, if you bought an unentitled track, you should be able to get to earthwork and call it 15 to 18 months. 
Um, and so would we buy that? Yeah, very likely we would. So do you like predictability? Are you, you know the timeline, even if the timeline is a little bit long, as long as it's predictable, is that a positive for you? And we would need to be comfortable with the municipalities and having done business and, and you know, and, and, and seeing the, the processes and, and making sure that they are actually kind of performing and tracking and keeping these projects on a roll. Where, where's your, where are you focused right now in terms of your locations, your geography? So as I said, we uh, we have a, a a few deals in California that we're we're managing on behalf of Starwood Cap right now. We actually uh, um, have assets in Arizona, Colorado, California. We're pretty long Texas right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a little bit left in Florida, um, Tennessee, and then the Carolinas um, really is the primary base of the holdings. The biggest single position would be Texas right now. Okay. So pretty Sunbelt, Sunbelty, would you consider, if you if you heard of something in some other location, would you consider, or you, do you have a pretty defined footprint and you're not going to stray out of that? No, we're pretty flexible. We'll go we'll go to a lot of locations, but one, one of the key things for us is we do not do vertical improvements. So we are not a home builder. We are a land development team and we want to be where we have numerous choices of builders. So a lot of the markets that are kind of small markets where you don't have publics and you only have privates, um, it's it's truly the the market for land and development is there's two there's two types of markets in our eyes. Is one that's got a lot of heavily traded, you know, publicly traded builders and a lot of big well-financed like a Tampa and Orlando, you know, um, a Dallas or Fort Worth. Um, and then there are markets that don't have that component as much. And that would be like a Kansas City, something like that. And so the number of exit strategies in a Kansas City are different than they are in an Orlando or a Phoenix, where it's a proverbial food court of builders. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, the, the competition for that land because of that food court is very, very intense. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's really analogous to home builders who their buyer pool is home buyers. Your buyer pool is home builders, but those where there are lots of folks in the buyer pool, it's a really competitive environment. That's a critical component to know too. Every project you do, you got to know how many builders, you know, are in this sub market and are going to be in this sub market. Um, and we've seen it change where, you know, in, a, in a, any kind of recessionary move, a lot of times the builders will pull out of, you know, certain markets. And, you know, right here in Florida, Vero Beach is an example. Um, you know, we bought stuff in the distress cycle that truly DR was the only one left building over there. And, and there was one other private builder. And so when you've got one horse to choose from, <laughs> you can guess who's setting the terms. It's certainly not you as the landowner, yeah. right? Yeah. Now there's 10 of them over there. Yeah. So would you, it's, it's, it's Halloween season almost pretty much. Would you consider like a haunted swampland or like a Native American burial ground potentially? Is that, does that deter you? No, that, yeah, <laughs> that we wouldn't be on that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just trying, I'm trying to get in the Halloween spirit here. Um, yeah. In terms of product, in terms of housing product, would you do anything? Are you focused on single family? You mentioned you had a history a while ago in high rise, mid rise. Would you do that? 
We would. Um, as you saw, though, the uh, the Surfside condo collapse, which was a horrible tragedy, has uh, has truly changed condo development in Florida um, for the foreseeable future. So um, it is our home base here. Um, and and we're, we're careful not to compete with Starwood Cap. They have a tremendous amount of multifamily uh, of experience and intensity. So when we do come across a good multifamily track, we'll typically partner with the uh, multi, the Starwood Cap guys on their multifamily team and, and let them develop that out. But, uh, um, you know, we're looking at multiple tracks that are now, um, we're, we're kind of called horizontal multifamilies, which is really the built to rent you know, product that uh, is out there, more cluster design, you know, not three units to the acre, more like seven or eight units to the acre. Now you're involved with Starward on the build for rent, the BFR side, kind of at the fringes a bit, but you predicted, don't be humble, about three years ago that the build for rent folks would be able to pay top dollar and outbid anyone else. That's come true. It's a given now. Why is that so? What is the, what are the mechanics of that? Well, a lot of the build for rent folks are, are, are trying to acquire as many land deals as they can and, and, and houses as they can. And so the, just the scarcity of supply, as you you guys all report regularly, you know, the average month supply of resale homes is probably two across most markets, you know, where it should be six or eight months supply. Um, so a lot of that is because the build for rent folks are buying those houses up. And so as the supply has dwindled, They've gotten more creative and, and now, you know, America's Home for Rent's got their own home builder. They're out buying land and numerous people are out, you know, buying their own land tracks. And so they're actually designing product that I don't find necessarily attractive, but it's attractive to the renter. It's a single family product. Uh, it's detached in many in many locations, but it's yielding, you know, four to eight units per acre versus the traditional, you know, old ways of doing things of single family development, you know, you would get two and a half, three units per acre. So it only stands to reason if the guy doubles the density, he's going to be paying a lot more for that land. So if you're a land seller, you know, John Q. Farmer out in Osceola County, and, you know, the, the guy's saying, hey, I'll pay you 90000 an acre versus the public builder wants to pay me 50000 an acre. You just don't have to care what he's going to do with it. So... Those guys are paying up and, and can do it. And, and it, it makes economic sense for their business model. So it's not they're overpaying. It makes sense for their model. It's a different well, model. I was, kind of, I was kind of going to ask that. I mean, do you ever feel like at all there's a little bit of froth in there and that there is maybe too much money chasing that space? Or is that not so? There, there's way too much money chasing that space. That, that I'm, I'm confident of that. I think I, I, I joked at one of John's conferences uh, about three years ago that um, on the residential land business, I feel like I'm swimming in a, a, a hot tub full of cash and I just have no projects to spend it on because there's $10 for every $1 of good deals that are out there. Today, that hot tub has become an Olympic sized swimming pool. Yeah. And <laughs> half of that pool is the built to rent folks. And so there's $1 and now there's $100,000 available for it. Mm -hmm. So there's tremendous appetite for that product. And I'm not so sure all of them are going to get satiated um, with their demand. Um, so it's creating a bit of an anomaly on the land land environment. And we'll see how that kind of plays out in time. Well, now you just have to have goggles and Speedos to play in that world instead of, you know, a, a, a martini. That is correct. 
Do you and tell me if tell me if this is getting too far afield in the BFR world for you? But do you feel like there also might be too many potential operators out there in the BFR space? It seems like everybody is at least looking at it right now. I think there are several operators. I think uh, from what we've seen, there are um, fewer that are really really good at it, and and it's difficult. It's a very difficult business. That's why I've stayed I've steered clear of it. We have. You know, 14 employees versus, you know, several thousand when you own 10,000 houses, you know, you got to have a couple thousand people managing that. And that's that's just very, very labor intensive. And it's a hard business to perfect. And so um, I applaud those that have created the platforms that are doing it and making it work. Um, And uh, Starwood Cap is on it again. They're doing it again. And so they're one of them. but it's hard. It's very, very difficult to do. And the operators are uh, finding that out, but they have seen incredible rent increases. And so guys like John Burns can opine better than I, what, how the sustainability of that looks. But uh, a lot of the rents that I see now are simply eye popping to me that I, you know, would have guessed three or four or five years ago. Yeah, I, I think honestly, as a sector, I think it's it's here to say it's going to be growing. It makes sense that it's growing, um, but as but I think there will be some folks doing it that maybe because of their inexperience or maybe because of just their outlook is maybe a little overly optimistic. There's going to be some mistakes along the road here. Just my gut. How about Mike? In terms of of markets, do you look at those? In, a, in that quantitative way, are you, are you constantly assessing markets in terms of where you want to be? We are. We are. We're very, very careful because every market is different, as you know. We, uh, we went long Arizona in the recession, um, Phoenix specifically. Um, and, you know, that recovery was slower there. You know, it was a number one market in the country for, you know, many, many years in that 04, 05, 06 range. Um, and it, the recession, you know, kind of crippled it. And, you know, we bought stuff that we thought was extraordinarily cheap and it took a lot longer to recover. And so um, that was an interesting play. But now not only has it recovered, it's actually seen a giant hockey stick in land prices and land value. And so, you know, we were green light there two, three years ago from a residential space. Today, we look at that with caution. So I would consider that a yellow light. And so, you know, it's yellow lighted much like an L.A. or a, uh, a Portland or a Denver. Um, they're not red lighted. We're not going to block them out, but we're going to just be pretty careful when we go there. And you see, that's it's a great example, by the way, of how much just craziness can play a part in the actual outcome. So Phoenix is a good example. You're right. Everybody looked at Phoenix. I think it was very rational of you to look at Phoenix and say that market's going to come back. But it took, I remember that, it took a long time for that market to come back. And I don't think anybody predicted that. And then the um, incredible strength of that market recently was also very, very hard to predict. There's a lot of mistakes that can be made in that kind of timing sequence, isn't there? There really is. And Phoenix was an interesting play. Phoenix kind of started to recover in 011, 012. And then 2013, I can't remember the event that happened, but um Phoenix took a precipitous drop down again, unlike a Dallas or a Houston or, or, or Orlando even. Um, we were selling lots in Phoenix and Orlando at the same time, and it was two separate markets. It was amazingly robust in, in Orlando. And then, you know, Phoenix was kind of like 
a lot of builders bought a lot of stuff in 011, 012, thinking, okay, Phoenix is going to, you know, blow back up and go back up to that, you know, 45, 50,000 starts a year type environment. And it was, it's been a while since I've looked at those numbers, but it was kind of tracking, you know, going back towards 15 or 16,000, I remember. And then it kind of took about a two or 3,000 blip down. Unlike a lot of markets, a lot of markets didn't have that blip down. And that's what I mean. That's that was a rational expectation in 2011 and 12. Say, okay, this market's going to continue upward, and it didn't. That, it's just it's sometimes funny how flips of coins can uh, impact out, outcomes so dramatically. It's certainly hot today, though. It is yeah. certainly hot today, especially in the BFR space. It's it's there's nothing close to it. Right. That's the that's the uh, incubator for that market, and it it. The land prices and lot prices have have gone up dramatically. You're going to see house prices climb there rapidly, and that's when we're going to see, you know, where is the ceiling for that product? Um, but I don't know that we're there yet because I think the the folks relocating there are coming out of more expensive places like California, you know, like uh, Portland and so forth, and it's still relatively affordable. Oh, hugely. By California standards, it's immensely affordable. What will be interesting to see how this whole kind of great migration thing as folks like in the tech space pull people back into offices, will those people still be able to work from home from Phoenix as or not? That's that's a, a zillion dollar question, kind of. Yeah, we, we, we see it in Florida, too. I think there's a, a tremendous influx right now of I was just having lunch with um, uh, uh, a higher-end builder in the Tampa market. And he, he just said to me that 50% of his buyers were reloads from the Northeast. And so that, that's a that that's up threefold from what it was three years ago. He used to be 15, 20%. And now it's it's close to 50% reload uh, to, uh, from out of the Northeast United States. That, yeah. That's a big number for Tampa. That's it's a huge number. And the question is, is that a permanent relocation or dislocation in the market? Or is it something that will trend back to the norm? My guess is it starts to trend back to the norm. But we'll see. Yeah. Uh, how about in terms of the different sectors within residential? I know you're not directly involved with apartments, but just your sense. Do you rank for sale versus true apartments versus BFR? In your, what are you looking after most days? We are truly trying to service the the big big public builders and the big private builders. So you know we are trying to source you know a large master plan community where we could have you know three or four or five builders in the project at the same time, um, and you know that's our specialty. We like to build amenities, build infrastructure, you know, create the place, if you will, and and bring in uh, complementary builders to the the stack, if you will, and you know kind of small, medium, and large type products. And and each builder, each community is different depending upon, you know, which builders are in that market. And so our focus is really the for sale, you know, kind of resi business. And, and almost all these communities now will end up with some uh, apartment uh, land or some multifamily land or even some land that kind of um, lends itself to the BTR guys. And we've sold land to, you know, uh, multifamily apartment developers as well as BTR folks. Okay. Would you actually have, I know this is kind of a hot topic too. Would you, when you're, as you're developing a master plan, you have X number of neighborhoods, would you consider selling one or more of those neighborhoods 
off to a BTR developer with the rest being for sale. No, it's actually, we're, we're doing that. We just did that uh, in a project in Houston, actually. Um, and, and it requires, you know, you've got to have HOA documents amended and you've got to have, mm. you know, be prepared for that and talk about usage rights of the amenities. And, you know, so it creates some complexity. Um, and, and in various markets, you have district bonds and stuff like that, that impact, you know, the rentals, uh, economics. And so they're, they're kind of adverse to that. And so you've got to work around those, those kind of elements. But, um, again, the, they can pay a premium for that lot that we're developing. So, um, in our case, as long as we feel that it's complimentary, it will not be a product that's going to, you know, dilute our builders that we're trying to sell, you know, retail lots from, and they're going to maintain and keep things, you know, maintained. I think that's always a critical element with the rentals is getting comfortable with, you know, the the maintenance program that, you know, the owners are going to keep in place. So we kind of prefer to deal with an institutional rather than sell, you know, 30, 40 houses throughout the community dispersed um, to, you know, various ventures. We'd rather sell, you know, a hundred lots to one group and kind of create their own section and, and, and require a maintenance plan in, in place with that group. And that lends itself to the institutional investors. Yeah. Okay. Does the land market scare you in the sense of, do you worry that there just isn't enough land for demand out there available, entitleable, developable land? I've been saying this for three or four years now. I, I, I really believe that, uh, um, every municipality is harder. Um, I joked at the last conference, I said, raise your hand if you're in a municipality where it's easier to get things done than it was three years ago. And of course, everyone laughed and no one raised their hand. And I said, raise your hand if you're in a municipality where it's extraordinarily hard or much harder than it was three years ago. And about three quarters of the room raised their hand. So um, even some of the smallest of towns and areas are um getting very granular and very detailed and, and, and adding additional costs to these developments. So it's making it harder. Um, I've, I've consistently thought that, you know, a million new, new single family starts um, a year is about what could be engineered and entitled. I don't know how we're going to ever see a million five, like we saw in 04 and 05, 2005, you know, a million five new single family homes. I don't think there's enough land in the way. I don't think it's being entitled and engineered and can get out of the entitlement process fast enough. And that's what you're seeing right now. You know, obviously you've seen a couple of the builders report supply chain shortages. I believe the biggest supply chain shortage is land. Now, obviously windows and doors and all that stuff is, you know, short as well. And I'm hearing paint now is, you know, one of them, but um, those don't impact me, but they impact my builder, which then impacts us. Because, you know, um, we're, we're, in, we're trying to put as many lots on the ground as we can. And as soon as we get them on the ground, they're bought up. And that's because I believe the biggest bottleneck in the, in, the, in the cycle is land. And that's the true throttle for how many new home sales are we going to see in 2021? I think it's going to end up below 800,000. Wow. And that keeps a kind of a governor on supply, which is in terms of this market, not imploding is a good thing. 
I think it's an, it's a, it's uh, inevitably uh, price increases too. And so we've got to monitor that very, very closely. Um, uh, you're seeing a lot of these markets with 20, 25% home price appreciation in 12, 15 months. That's dangerous. And that's dangerous in a lot of spots. So, you know, you pick an MSA, um, you know, in Nashville, there, there are parts there that you've seen 30% price increase in 12 months. And, and so, you know, that's now getting to a product that's a $700,000 house. Well, if interest rates kind of, I call it stabilized, if they went back to some sort of ordinary, I mean, you, you and I are of comparable age. We used to think 6 or 7% was kind of ordinary. I think vast majority of these buyers have never seen anything but three or four percent rates, and so if it popped to five or six, that house that's selling for seven hundred today has got a bad day of coming. Oh yeah, I mean it would just jump their monthly well beyond their means. Yeah, I mean even folks we're funny even folks in really high end markets like Silicon Valley. They're buying million plus dollar townhomes, but trust me, those those folks are stretched. They cashed out their Google stock and whatever. They're stretched. They're not putting much in upgrades in there. They're stretched to buy that. They can afford that million to townhouse, townhouse, but they're stretched for that. And yeah, the three percent or whatever market rate—that's uh, huge for them. Do you think land prices might be too throbby? I think I know the answer to that, but I have to ask: do you th- Are they fair right now? I think in many locations. And, and, and again, even in MSA, there's 10 locations within, a, you know, Tampa, there's 10 spots you could buy land. Um, I, I would say two or three out of those are, are overpriced and, and you got to be careful. Um, but I would say uh, many of the markets are still relatively affordable. You know, I think the average new home price in Tampa, for example, last year was three, you know, low 330, mm-hmm. something like that. That's still pretty affordable. Yeah. On a national person, yeah. You know, fifteen, eighteen thousand homes a year. You know, yeah. Lenard, Lenard. I think they did thirty five hundred homes in Tampa last year, and their average price was probably in the low three hundreds. That's pretty affordable. Yeah, relatively sure, sure. Especially if your buyers are coming from the Northeast of California, where they can cash out for a good chunk of change. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's end with the my favorite thing which is having you go on record and predicting stuff. So I, or so other people like me can gloat later on if you're wrong. And, you know, let's just, let's just do it at the kind of the market cycle sense. There's always that, that pit, that baseball innings analogy where are we in the whatever inning? I mean, in baseball, I, I think I've said this before, but in baseball, you can bat around and you can extend that inning for a very long time until there's, until you've made that third out. And it seems like that's what we're doing. Do you see this as continuing Maybe not the 25, 30% appreciation, but you see a, a solid market fundamentals continuing for a decent length of time going forward. I do. And in, in, in a lot of the, uh, the more pro growth states, and I see, uh, I think it's going to be much like the last recession, but it won't be anywhere deep like that. But I think it'll be, it, it's impactful like that. And, you know, Texas, the last recession, Texas was, I'm not going to say unaffected, but not affected hardly at all, like Florida was. And Washington D.C., you know, it didn't have as much impact as it did in Washington as it does as as it did in Florida. So um, it's going to be cyclical, and it's going to be uh, in different municipalities. It'll all be different. But I would tell you, yes, if 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 uh, 
if you asked, what do I think the, the new single family home, you know, sales, uh, like I said, I think this year it probably ends up somewhere around 800,000. Um, and I see that for the next two, three, four years, it's just, where are those 800 going to be built? And so I think, you know, some of the pricier locales, they may not be happy. Um, but the, the affordable locales, uh, long Texas, not, not all of Texas is affordable, as you know. I mean, different pockets are, you know, pricier. Um, Austin. But yeah. I think that you're going to see, you know, a DFW will continue to grow. It's going to continue to, you know, attract uh, attract buyers and, and it's a diverse economy. Houston proved its diversity in this last little blip. They had negative oil rates. Oil was trading for a negative number. If you remember, that was what, April of last year? And and. And Houston kept selling houses. That's I think it's a more diverse economy. It's very affordable. It's a it's a pretty desirable place to live. Um, no state tax. It's it's got a lot of you know reasons there. It's hot just like it is in Florida. But um, you know, so I believe that my 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 short answer is yes. I think uh, unfortunately for me, a guy that thrives on the distress cycles, um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't foresee that distress day coming back, and I hope it does before I retire. But, so no, uh, no more, no more pennies on the dollar days for you. I hope I get one more of those before I retire. <laughs> but I'm one of the few guys in the room that wants to see a collapse. Yeah. <laughs> no, you really are. Um, well, that's great, Mike. Thanks so much for for coming on. That was great. We learned a lot about land and land market today. That was that was super helpful. Greatly appreciate your time, and you guys have a good day. You too. Awesome. Okay, thanks a lot. This is Gene Worley for the New Home Insights podcast. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.